The big business of small satellites. You're listening to Are We There Yet? The radio show exploring space exploration. Hi, I'm Brendan Byrne. A new company plans to launch small satellites from the belly of a drone. It joins the growing number of small launch companies popping up to send tiny payloads into space. So what's the market for these small satellites? We'll dive into this growing industry first with Jay Skyless. He's the CEO and founder of Avum. His company has plans to launch small payloads on a rocket launched from the belly of an unmanned aerial vehicle. What does he see heading to space on his vehicle? And what will it take to get the Raven X UAV off the ground? Then Avum joins the growing market of small launch providers. We'll take a look at the state of the industry with Anthony Colangelo. He hosts the commercial space-focused podcast Main Engine Cutoff about this bustling market and the future of the small satellite industry. The big business of small satellites. That's ahead on Are We There Yet? here on America's Space Station. Avum's Raven-X is a sleek-looking aircraft, and its designers hope the UAV can help launch all sorts of things into space, bringing access to space to more people, whether that's commercial companies or scientific researchers. There's still a lot of work ahead for Avum, like flight tests and getting a license to launch, but founder and CEO Jay Skylas is optimistic his vehicle will come online next year, possibly launching a payload for the Space Force from Cecil Spaceport in Jacksonville, Florida. He joins us now to talk about his company's plans and the path forward. Jay Skylas, thanks for speaking with us. Uh, thank you very much. Happy to be here. Well, Jay, first of all, let, let's talk about Raven X. Um, it's a cool-looking vehicle. Um, once this thing is is flying, what will it do? When Raven X flies, it will mark effectively the operational capability of this new paradigm of space access called autonomous launch. An autonomous launch is more than just the uh, the cool fire and flames itself. It's it refers to the entire logistics architecture that uh, supports that flight. And um, because there's no pilot, the infrastructure is very important. And the reason that we need this uh, complex capability is because we want to make space accessible for everybody. And in order to do that, we really need to make sure that rocket science isn't something that is unobtainable for most people, given whether it's uh, the time time it takes to become a domain expert or a, a cost of uh, getting a payload to orbit. We want to bring all of those things down so that people can actually utilize space to make the world better. And so that's what the first flight of Raven X will really mark for for me is that you know, humanity's uh, ability to use low Earth orbit to make our lives on Earth better. It's it's an interesting vehicle. You said it's you know autonomous, and and the rocket is actually attached to the underside of it. Tell me how that that works. I mean. You know, this kind of reminds me of some other, you know, airplane launching systems like Pegasus. Is it similar in how it launches from the belly of, of this aircraft? Yes, absolutely. absolutely. No, it's, it's very similar um, in, in the CONOPS. The concept of operations is, is the same, uh, more or less, um, other than just some some fine, finer details that, that make autonomous launch a little bit more efficient and effective at getting payloads to orbit, mainly because there's no uh, human lives uh, in danger uh, with, with autonomous launch since it's fully unmanned. And, and why did you choose this method? I mean, when I think about Pegasus, I don't think of too many launches 
of the Pegasus system. And, you know, there's other small launchers that are coming online that are, you know, kind of this, this vertical launch system. Why did you decide to go this route with, with RavenX? Yeah, absolutely. No, Pegasus is, to the aerospace community, Pegasus is incredible for a lot of reasons, but one of those reasons is not the price. <laughs> Uh, it's not very cost-effective at all. In fact, it's a very expensive launch system, which is why it doesn't fly very much. Um, and so when I set out to sort of look at how we can make space more accessible, um, and just backing up real quick, the reason that space being more accessible is important to me is because there's a lot of innovation out there that's just sort of sitting around not able to um, make you know, help solve some of the most pressing global challenges that um, if, if it was, if those technologies were deployed, it could really help. And so if the only barrier is getting them there, then we, we really naturally just need to make that, make that easier, right? So when I started really looking at that problem, um, I didn't want to be biased towards any solution. And I really, you know, made up my mind that I was going to let physics drive what that ultimate solution looks like. You know, we, going into this sort of 15 years ago, you, I didn't really know what the form of it was going to be um, or what the method was going to be. And, and you just sort of look at a bunch, bunch of math equations on a piece of paper and you just start cranking through through the solutions. And uh, you just sort of arrive at a at a solution that that the physics favors, and um, it just turned out that air launch type of systems like Pegasus, and there are several others. There's uh, there's Rascal, Alesa, there's X thirty three. There's just been so many concepts besides Pegasus, um, and then there's also uh, many others that are that are up and coming now. And so, uh, air launch though is a very uh, economical solution from a physics perspective, uh, from from an energy budget perspective, but there are some subtle inefficiencies that that creep up whenever you actually build the system and try to operate it. And those are operational inefficiencies that physics equations don't necessarily uh, pull out to the surface. And so you can only detect these inefficiencies once you start operating these systems. And so there was a lot of lessons learned that I picked up from some of these previous programs that I implemented into autonomous launch. And, and um, that that really led to a sort of an air launch system that uh, is primarily uh, composed of software and autonomous technology so we can get the humans out of the loop and eliminate those inefficiencies. And I've got to imagine an air launch system allows you to kind of launch from far more places than, say, um, you know, a, a traditional vertically launched rocket, right? I mean, what kind of facility will Raven X need? Um, and can you move this vehicle around to, you know, different airports or, or whatnot? Yes. Yeah, absolutely. Um, so launch sites are ex- extremely complicated inf- uh, pieces of engineering. I mean, they're, I mean, it's, it's, it's often a lot more complicated than even, even the rocket itself. I, the only major difference is that, you know, launch sites don't have to be flight weight. So you can use heavier materials, higher f- factors of safety. So your structures can be uh, really beefy and you don't have to necessarily uh, hit some of the tolerances that you got to hit on your parts on the, like on a flight vehicle. But they're still extremely complicated because you still have to manage the um, – the temperatures of the fuels and the different propellants that you're flowing through the launch pad to the rocket. Um, you got to make sure that you're hitting the right pressure so that you don't overpressurize your rocket and destroy something. 
Um, you know, you got to condition the power system so that you don't have unnecessary current or voltage spikes. Um, you know, and, and it all has to adjust according to the different environments. And so there's a ton of stuff that goes into it. And so not having to build this complicated piece of um, infrastructure is, is tremendously helpful um, for flexibility of launch sites, as you're as you're you know brilliantly mentioning, and then also simplifying um, the access to space. And that that is a common thread through this conversation. Jay is lowering the cost of access to space, making space more accessible to people. Obviously, it's a foundation of of your company and your mission. Can you tell us a little bit about what kind of payloads you envision? What can it get into space? Yeah, so right off the bat, we um, the, the the vehicle that we rolled out um, a couple of days ago, that's uh, serial number zero. So that's RavenX serial number zero. And um, SN0 is capable of launching 100 kilograms to orbit. And that SN0 through uh, two for now is going to be the block one configuration. And that has a 100 kilogram payload to orbit. And that 100 kilogram uses a design reference mission of 500 kilometers sun synchronous orbit. So it's kind of a, a great baseline to design your vehicle around. And um, future variants will uh, increase the payload capacity up to uh, 300 kilograms. And what's kind of the market? Where's the need for uh, a launch system like yours? Is this for the commercial sector? Is this for you know communication satellites? Are we talking you know, science experiments. I mean, how, what do you see this system kind of doing the heavy lifting for? Yeah. So, and that's an excellent question. I mean, so, you know, right off the bat, the short answer is um, our system's really designed for those satellite operators and users that have been doing this for a long time and they just really need operationally relevant access to space, meaning some event occurred and they really need to get their sensors deployed in the right places so they can either observe it, the event, or, uh, you know, measure things or, you know, respond to it somehow. And so those are our near-term immediate customers. Now, there are these big mega constellations that are popping up all over the place. And um, those are also our customers as well. And there are smaller constellations like, you know, eight satellite constellations for uh, IoT connectivity or machine-to-machine -machine connections or, uh, you know, better, better, better weather forecasting or something like that on the commercial side. And those are also our customers. And we're... Um, Really excited to reveal some of those customers here pretty soon. But one thing that you know really gets me excited is that that's we're just scratching the surface with these things. So it's kind of a chicken and an egg type of situation, right? So the solutions that we see in space with satellite constellations and the way that satellites are designed today are what they are because of the launch capabilities that exist in the current environment as well. So launch sort of drives the satellite design and satellite design sort of drives the launch. So it's kind of back and forth. Avum took a bet on this 100 to 300 kilogram uh, size satellites. Um, and because of our uh, rapid capability, low cost reusability, ease of access, uh, both physically and digitally, and the fact that we only need a runway, uh, I think it's really going to start influencing the satellite design. And when we did well, I guess, yeah, I guess back then it was just me. But, you know, back back in like 2010, for example, uh, through 2013, I was really observing the small satellite market and doing a lot of math trying to figure out 
if money was not a factor, if technologies were the only focus, how much how much mass would I need in a spacecraft to do 90% of uh, the things that I want to do to improve the world? And, you know, I really couldn't use anything more than 80 kilograms of mass. I mean, I could pack a satellite in with all the latest and greatest tech, and it really just came out to like 80 kilograms. So like 300 kilograms is like three of those and we can phase it in orbit and and things like that. And so, you know, that's kind of why we, we have that payload capacity. And I think in the future, uh, physics is just going to drive satellites to that class once the capability is there for launch. Jay, what's, what are the next steps? I mean, are there some regulatory hurdles you need to overcome? I mean, I've got to assume there are. This is a drone that launches rockets. I'm guessing there's a little bit of apprehension to giving you a license. What What's next? Yeah, no, the uh, I think, you know, that's so great. I, the aerospace community and tech community is just so so wonderful because everybody's so smart and, and passionate. And, and I, you know, you're spot on. The regulatory environment definitely keeps me up at night. Um, and it's very interesting, you know, because you're trying to integrate this unmanned autonomous aircraft into the national airspace. Um, and you know, that's naturally sort of scary. And so, you know, for us, that's, that's sort of the next focus. So rollout of SN zero was, uh, primarily the marking, uh, of the start of all the tests and ground operations that we have to prove to regulatory, uh, agencies to show that we can operate this aircraft and this uh, vehicle and uh, our concept of operations is safe for uh, public, for the public. And so we're going to start doing a lot of tests and we have a ton of work ahead of us. Um, you know, this is not like a, um, a normal aircraft that you just have, a, you know, hire a test pilot and, you know, you have a very, very smart, you know, insightful pilot that can help you sort of go through the airworthiness certification and things like that. This is a this is a software, right? This is a flight software that you have to teach every little thing that you know that it needs to do. And so, you know, the regulators and we're gonna have to, you know, work really closely together to try to figure out how to do this. But we have a path. So, you know, FAA's UAS office has a airworthiness certification for uh, drones of this size. Um, you know, fifty five thousand pounds is the world's largest uh, unmanned aircraft. And um, the FAA Commercial Space Office has a launch licensing procedure for reusable launch vehicles, which is what we are. And so working with those two offices, I'm pretty, pretty confident that we'll get through it. It's just a lot of work. Um, we've been speaking with Avon founder and CEO Jay Skylish. Jay, thank you so much for making time. Thank you so much, Brendan. Just ahead, a look at the small launch market that's busting at the seams. Are We There Yet is back in a minute. You're listening to Are We There Yet here on America's Space Station. I'm Brendan Byrne. We just heard from Avum founder and CEO Jay Skylas about that company's drone-launched rocket. It joins the growing number of commercial companies looking to launch smaller payloads into space. But is the market already saturated? To take a deep dive into the business of small launchers, I reached out to Anthony Colangelo. He's the host of the podcast Main Engine Cutoff and co-hosts the podcast Off Nominal. He joins us from his studio in Philadelphia. Anthony, thanks for speaking with us. 
Thanks for having me, Brendan. It is a pleasure to talk with you. I miss you. I miss the weather in Florida at this time of the year. We don't miss it. It's cold. I'm sending it back up your way. (laughs) (laughs) Good to have you back on, Anthony. We just heard from Avon founder and CEO Jay Skylas about the company's drone-launched rocket. How does this company fit into this kind of small launcher ecosystem that seems to just be like bursting at the seams right now? That's a kind way to put it, I think. Um, it's hard to tell really where they're going to end up. They've given some vague numbers at this point. They say they can do a couple hundred kilograms to low Earth orbit for five to seven million dollars, which is fairly in line with a lot of the other competitors out there. So price and payload wise, they are kind of in amongst the crop of these uh, companies. And really, the the trick is how do you survive in a space that is this big? Now, the the one way to do that is specialize and have at least one unique part. Uh, of your architecture, and they're trying this air launch system, which does have... I'm, I'm a very big air launch skeptic, just to put that out there. It has a few things that are touted as, as benefits that you also see, as we'll talk about with uh, Virgin Orbit as well. You can fly from any airport, really, that is, uh, has the infrastructure that you need to launch. Uh, so they're using you know jet fuel, they say, in these rocket engines, which is more that you can get access to that easier than you know something like you see with the bigger launchers that need tons and tons of rocket propellant which is totally different um so there's that sort of flexibility and with that comes the ability to say go to another country uh and this is something that virgin orbit has signed a lot of agreements with uh, other nations to investigate this kind of thing it's a way for these other countries that don't necessarily have a spaceport to all of a sudden have uh, a kind of launch industry that can take off from their shores and in you know in a an industry that is very secretive there's a lot of times agreements in place that don't let you export technology to another country so some of these startups if they're flying from you know airports abroad that is an attractive offer uh, for countries that would be interested in that sort of thing then the other real benefit of air launch is that uh, instead of having these very singular launch windows when the particular uh, if you're meeting up with something in orbit like the international space station or another satellite you have to wait for that ground track to come right over your launch site. Well, the benefit with an airplane is you can fly to that ground track. So you do extend uh, the capability to hit different rendezvous targets or even just a very precise uh, orbit from anywhere, anytime. And that is the big selling feature. Uh, particularly, that is a thing that is very interesting to the Department of Defense. Um, they have a lot of interest in that, whether that is for nefarious means or just merely you know, wanting access to any orbit at any time of the day. So Avum, you know, it joins a growing number of small launchers, as you mentioned, and, you know, these are companies and industries that, that, that you cover extensively on your on your show. So I kind of want to do like a, a rundown of uh, these small launchers that are out there. And I want to start with Rocket Labs, um, because this company's been having uh, some recent success with launches and now recovery. Um, I also think they've had some great success with the names of their rockets and their missions. <laughs> <laughs> so bring us up to speed, Anthony. Uh, what's going on with Rocket Labs? Yeah, they've had a huge year. Um, not only they have have one failure this year, which is a bummer for them, but they got back on pretty quickly um, relative to other launched companies that have had failures. It usually takes a while to get back up and running. They were very quick on that, which I think speaks to you know the team over there that they're on top of work in the way that they are. Uh, but they've had a, a great run of launches this year, and uh, they've also introduced some new product offerings, which is maybe only interesting to the nerds like me, but they've introduced an option for an expanded fairing, so a bigger nose cone to uh, encapsulate bigger payloads, and that is by volume. You know, they can carry a certain amount, a couple hundred kilograms to low Earth orbit in mass, but satellites at that size, they're not often that dense that they can, you know, hit that uh, mass while still 
being contained in the volume. So that bigger fairing opens them up to more customers. And now they're getting started with reusability. Uh, they, they were able to successfully recover their first stage very recently. Uh, it descended under parachutes. I guess, importantly, I should note, they made it back through the atmosphere, which is quite a feat when you're coming in at the speeds they are. Uh, descended under parachutes, and they recovered it from an ocean splashdown. Uh, they're going to do that another couple of times because when they get that stage back, they can see what holds up and what does not. They've figured out what pieces they need to improve. You know, they basically flew any old Electron rocket and see what happens with it when it comes back through the atmosphere. And now they know uh, which parts they need to kind of beef up a little bit to make it back and be able to fly again. So they're going to do that until they feel like the rockets they're getting back are in really good shape. And at that point, instead of letting it splash down in the ocean, they're actually going to catch it. Uh, with a helicopter, which will be pretty spectacular to watch. Uh, And that sounds crazy, but that's something that used to happen a lot uh, in the days before we could send, you know, digital images. Uh, The old spy satellites in the 60s would take uh, photos, they would go onto film, they would shoot a film canister out of the satellite back uh, to Earth, and those canisters would actually do the same kind of thing, to send under a a parachute and be captured by a helicopter. So it's a time-tested thing, but now they're going to try it with a full rocket, uh, hopefully sometime next year. And they're also working on another launch facility, right? Yes, they are. Um, they've had some delays with this, specifically around uh, some what they'll call paperwork, but what NASA might call something else. There's maybe a little bit of bickering there behind the scenes. But they're trying to get uh, the launch site up in Virginia, and they should be able to launch from there next year. Uh, and that has a really interesting facility nearby that they can uh, really handle some you know, top-secret payloads. And that's another with them launching so frequently, a lot of those launches you'll see are for uh, agencies like the National Reconnaissance Office, the U.S. Air Force, U.S. Space Force certainly has uh, loved having access to this kind of launch capability. So having that from the U.S. territory uh, is a pretty big deal, and it will certainly span the globe for their launch sites. They're almost exactly opposite of ends of Earth here, uh, all the way up in Virginia, where they usually launch from uh, New Zealand. Or another company that uh, hasn't left the ground yet, but it's definitely raising money, is Relativity Space. Uh, what's the latest with uh, this group? Yeah, they just raised another, I think it was like $500 million. Uh, they are really flush with cash to a certain extent. And they did this uh, last year. They raised, I think it was $140 million. At that point, they said that was enough to get them through to first launch. And that would happen you know, down in your neck of the woods from Cape Canaveral. Uh, but since then, they've said that they are opening up a new headquarters. They've got this new factory they're building out there. They just signed an agreement to get access to Vandenberg Air Force Base. So they're certainly taking on a lot of expansion. But their big selling point is that they are 3D printing uh, these vehicles. So It's a company that is a launch services company, but is also doing it by way of some of the most advanced 3D printers in the world. Uh, So which leads to the question I've always asked, is Relativity a 3D printing company that happens to launch satellites, or are they a satellite launching company that happens to 3D print their rockets? I think from an investment standpoint, that is arguable. I would bet that a lot of the interest that they're getting from uh, investors are because of their technology, and if they are as good as they say they are, Uh, at manufacturing stuff like this that could revolutionize not just launching satellites but other industries as well which i'm sure is where a lot of the investment interest is coming from and why you're seeing their valuation above two billion dollars another company is virgin Um, there's virgin galactic which is the tourism arm and virgin orbit a budding small sat launcher uh what's going on with richard branson's uh space ambitions here anthony 
Well, they are uh, saying that they're going to actually have another attempt by the end of the year. They tried to launch their first satellite to orbit uh, earlier this year, and they had a failure, unfortunately, pretty shortly after ignition of the first stage engine, and that fell into the ocean. So they're going to try again here. They they think they fixed what happened last time. They're going to give it another go. Um, now, Virgin Orbit is one that they are pretty expensive comparative to, comparative to all these other uh, companies that we're talking about here, and they have payload on the lower range. So they're this kind of weird beat where low payload, high price, and I think, you know, as I said, I'm a skeptic about air launch. There's a lot of infrastructure to manage. I think there's some weird quirks about it. I'm not super optimistic about the long run of Virgin Orbit, to be honest, um, but certainly, you know, whoever can fly launch vehicles to orbit consistently has a leg up on the rest of the competition. So Rocket Lab has had the run of the place for a couple of years here and they're waiting for their first competitor and it seems like Virgin Orbit is really, you know, odds on favorite to be the first second one flying if that makes any sense. And you bring a good point. There are a lot of these companies coming online. I mean, is there really a need for all of these launchers or are these companies scrambling? to get just get a piece of this small market. I mean, give us a sense of just how big is the small sat industry? I don't know if anyone knows how many it can handle yet. There's obviously, if you talk to Rocket Lab, who is flying, they'll say there's only room for two or three, uh, which is something you've heard a lot on the bigger end of the market as well from SpaceX and United Launch Alliance. They say, sorry, there's only room for two or three, which, yeah, if you're one of the people flying, you're definitely going to say that. Uh, everyone else out there, I think, like I said, they're trying to find what is that special piece of the market that they can make their name on? What is the attractive proposition to fly with them? Um, I mean, certainly there's not a lot of traffic right now. If you look and you think for like a long-term view, how many satellites do we want to launch to space? If you're optimistic, you'd want a lot more than we are right now. Um, and certainly if you talk to these launch companies in private, a lot of them are going to be more nervous than they let on publicly uh, that they can continue to sell enough payloads. The Department of Defense, the government agencies out there, the science agencies out there are being increasingly uh, optimistic about these smaller satellites. So I think that is uh, a big part of the market that we'll see in the next couple of years is really that government sector uh, downsizing everything and making it, instead of spending a lot of money on a few huge satellites, you're spending the same amount of money on a bunch of little satellites, which sounds like not as good, except for when you spend a billion dollars a piece and six satellites and one of them fails, you are out one-sixth of your budget there. Uh, but if you instead launch 100 things and you do it via a constellation, you're much more survivable against you know threats or technological, technological failures or whatever it is. Um, so there's certainly a trend in this direction, but I do think there's a gauntlet to run here where you want to see these launch vehicles come online, but are there enough payloads to support it? It's a little bit chicken or egg to some extent, uh, and certainly with an industry like satellites, you tend to only know about a satellite about a year or two before it makes it to orbit. So that's kind of hard to predict unless you're a super secret expert that has all the inside lines and everything, uh, which I unfortunately for you am not. Uh, but I do try to try to lead, read the tea leaves on the public information. Uh, and I, it's, there's definitely going to be a whittling down of all this long list of companies. Uh, we're joined by Anthony Colangelo. He's the host of the podcast Main Engine Cutoff and co-hosts Off Nominal. Anthony, thanks so much for speaking with us. Thank you, Brendan. Well, there's more to that conversation that didn't make it into this show. Be sure to subscribe to Are We There Yet's podcast feed for more commercial space analysis, like a look at SpaceX's busy year and the future of ULA's new Vulcan rocket. You can get this show on NPR One, iTunes, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. Well, that's going to do it for this week's show. Stay connected online. Visit wmfe.org space. 
or give us a follow on Twitter and Instagram. We're at AWTY Space. On Facebook, just search for Are We There Yet Podcast, or you can always shoot me an email. That address is Are We There Yet at WMFE.org. Are We There Yet is a production of WMFE, America's Space Station. Editorial guidance this week from Matthew Petty. The show's intern is Nelly Ontiveros. Our director of content is Steve Yasko. Support for Are We There Yet comes from our listeners. Until next week, I'm Brendan Byrne. Thanks for listening.